Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to pick up at verse 12. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people To all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread, and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so a little bit of review to get us back uh, settled into the the place where we were in 2 Samuel. King David is is ruling over all of Israel, right? All the tribes have come under his care. He is bringing order to his kingdom. He is is militarily and um, liturgically and... Uh, as far as worship, trying to bring order to um, Israel and to their, uh, and also politically to bring order. So he's trying to restore order that's been lost. You remember Uzzah? They the the immediately preceding passage is where they're trying to move the ark, and they're not doing it according to the law, or they're not doing it according to the the Kohathites and the Levitical rules, but they put it on a cart and Uzzah reaches out his hand and is struck dead. And you remember what it says about David. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He was afraid of the Lord that day. Um, There's a sense in which 
he seems to have responded in anger. He is unwilling then to move the ark to Jerusalem. And so they drop it at some guy's house. They drop it at the house of Obed-Edom. There's some question about who Obed-Edom is. Um, Some say that he's a a Philistine or a Gentile. Um, But there's there's an Obed-Edom that keeps popping up in... um, in other places later on. And so uh, I think he was just, uh, he was a Jew, and he had a house that was close to where they were, and they dropped, they dropped the ark off at his house. Now, why would Obed-Edom let the ark come to his house? Given what had just happened in, with Uzzah, which he would probably have heard about, why would he allow it to come to his house? Well, let's dig into the details a little bit more. And um, the parallel passage here, we can go to 1 Chronicles 13. And 1 Chronicles 13 says, So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside. This is verse 13 of chapter 13. But took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, Thus, the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. Okay, so it's there for three months, um, which is, you know, 12, 13 Sabbaths, uh, sitting in his house. And we find out that the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Right, so every part of the household of Obed-Edom receives blessing uh, when the ark is there. Um, in 1 Chronicles 15, a few chapters forward in 18, we read this, um, or 17. So the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, from his relatives, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and from the sons of Merari, their relatives, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them, their relatives of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jaziel, Shemariamoth, Jael, Uni, Eliab, Benaiah, Messiah, Mattathiah, Eliphalehu, Mekniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, the gatekeepers. So it seems that he, he was, um, if this is the Obed-Edom of earlier, it seems that he was serving as a Levite, and he was also a gatekeeper. And uh, in verse 21 of the same chapter, we find out that he plays the liar, and then in verse 24, it reiterates the fact that he's a gatekeeper, a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. First Chronicles 16, um, 37 to 38, <clears throat> uh, we, we read this about worship before the ark. So he left Asaph and his relatives there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark continually as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 relatives... Obed-Edom, also the son of Jeduthun, and Hosa as gatekeepers. So it seems that all of Obed-Edom's family is involved in uh, this, this service as Levites. 68 relatives that are serving with him. And then 1 Chronicles 26, 26, 4 through 8, Obed-Edom had sons. Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehazabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nathanael the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Pulathai the third. God had indeed blessed him. 
Also to his son Shemaiah, sons were born, who ruled over the house of their father, for they were mighty men of valor. So you see that Obed, you see the blessings of Obed-Edom working out in um, sons being born to him, but not just those sons being born to him, and they were mighty men of valor, it said. His sons served the Lord. And um, so you have to think that as they became gatekeepers, mighty men of the Lord, um, these are the blessings of God being worked out upon Obed-Edom, his servant. So back to that question, why would Obed-Edom let the ark come to his house? Is he crazy? Where in the law of God does it say that the ark of the covenant should be stored in somebody's private property or private home? After God lashed out at Uzzah, you would think that that he would want to be more careful than that, although he is a Levite. And he does have charge over the things of the Lord, and he is a gatekeeper. And I think that's significant. A gatekeeper would be those who allow um, or disallow people coming into the the presence of the Lord in the uh, tabernacle at this point. And so... um, I think Obed-Edom is willing to do this because of those two dual things that cause us to do things in our lives. That's faith and duty. Right? Faith and duty. He's got faith. You know, he's seen the Lord strike out, but he knows that there's there's blessing in the presence of God. And the ark represents the presence of God for Israel. That's where God said that His glory would dwell between the, cher- the, the uh, cherubim, right, upon the mercy seat. And He knows there's blessing. There's blessing in the presence of God. And so, even though He's seen God strike out, He has faith. He's, he has faith that the presence of God is good. And then there's duty. He's a, he's a Levite. Who else is going to do it, right? He's a Levite. He has duty. Perhaps He was commanded. Perhaps... Um, he is uh, faithfully willing to take that on because he feels the weight of his duty. He could have run off. Right? He could have said, no way, no way. He could have forsaken his calling as a Levite and gone his own way. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very strange. Um, you know, it's, it's supposed to be handled very carefully. It's supposed to be hidden when it's moved. It's supposed to not be seen. It's supposed to be moved in a particular way. It's supposed to be hidden in the Holy of Holies. And the high priest is to visit it once a day. But we have these examples of just, just open blessing coming to those who are willing to have the ark in their presence. Um, think of the presence of God. Think of what the ark brought to various different people. What, what happened when the Philistines had the ark? You remember that earlier? What happened when the Philistines... Well, there's the whole Dagon incident, right? But, but what grows on their bodies? Tumors. It is a tumor. Yeah, they get tumors. They're afflicted. You know, these are the Gentiles, and they have the... God is cast out of Israel and goes into the Gentile territory. And what, do, what blessings do the Gentiles get? 
the Philistines who don't worship Yahweh, well, they don't receive any blessings. They receive affliction. They get tumors. Um, and then Uzzah, who is a Jew, right, who is one of the people of God, approaches the ark um, improperly and dies. And then we have Obed-Edom, who is a Levite and is to serve in the temple, and what comes to him is blessings. So I think throughout these books we see the different results of the presence of God. Uh, toward those who won't worship Yahweh, there's affliction that comes upon them through the ark and then through, um, through others there are blessings received. So, back in 2 Samuel 6, the ark is finally brought to Jerusalem um, from Uzzah's light treatment of holiness to David's zealous treatment of holiness. Um, we, uh, we, see, we see him uh, bringing the, the ark to Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know what I meant in my notes right there. I'm trying to figure it out. It's just a bunch of random words. Um, I think what I meant to point out here is we have a contrast between Uzzah's light treatment of holiness and now David being zealous in this chapter for the holiness of God. He's dancing before the Lord. He's making sure that the ark comes in. And yet, he, he, we, we just learned that he... He was afraid of the Lord. And so, in the godly fear and love embrace, right? In the godly fear and love embrace. The fear of God and the love of God are not mutually exclusive. They dwell together in the heart of, of believers. And so, um, fearfulness and gladness come together. Heaviness and lightness come together. And fear and joy live together in, in the believer. And so, and we remember Psalm 2. It says to rejoice with trembling. Seems like a contradiction, right? Re rejoice. Um, feel the lightness with trembling. Feel the heaviness, right? Lightness and heaviness together. So David is joyful, um, and Jerusalem is joyful. Every six paces, they're doing a, a series of sacrifices. This is, a, this is a long liturgy, right? This is a long process. Six paces and they sacrifice animals. This is much different than before when they were um, trying to be expedient and move it on a cart quickly. Now they are taking their time. And what is David doing? He's dancing. He's dancing. Verse 14, and David was dancing. What are the next three words? Nope. It's in your Bibles. Nope. Before the Lord. David was... Is that what you said? That's good. We'll, we'll accept that. We'll give you credit. And you get the assist. Okay. Um, David is dancing before the Lord. That's key here. And that's exactly what he says to Michael, who's accusing him of dancing before the girls. Right? That's exactly what David goes and says to Michael, his bitter wife, later. So David is dancing before the Lord, and now it says, with all his might, with strength. He is his, um, what do you think it means that David is dancing before the Lord with all his might? 
you know, is he just, uh, he, he's, not, um, he's not flossing, right? That's just the arms, right? He is moving. He is, he, his, I, I would say there's a sort of um, a, a relentless abandon to it, but it's not abandoned because he's doing it before the Lord. He is using his strength. He is using his body to worship God, right? And he's wearing the linen ephod. And now the linen ephod is, it was a priestly garment. It's kind of strange that the king would be wearing the priestly robes, right? This is not David dancing around in his, his undergarments as people think, or as you've heard evangelicals say. This is him wearing the priestly ephod, which was a which was basically a, a shirt and, and down to the knees, but it, it represented the priesthood. And so David is acting the priest now and leading the people in worship. All of the house of Israel participated. There's shouting. There's the blaring of trumpets. Um, <clears throat> and then finally they get um, to put the ark in the tent where it ought to be. And then David does this wonderful thing where he finishes the day by giving the people food, right? You're quacking back there, man. Um, This wonderful end of the evening, he gives them food, refreshment. You know, you think of the, um, the scene with Jesus and the apostles, and Jesus has been teaching the people all through the day, and the apostles make the point that the people are hungry. Send them to get some food, and, and, and Jesus says, no, you give them some food. And that's when he breaks the loaves and the fish and, and gives them food to eat. Here's David acting the part of Jesus and giving the people, um, giving the people nourishment. And I think that's um, it's something to keep in mind. There's power in food. There's power in eating together. That's why we as, we as men get together and eat. That's why we invite people over to our homes to eat, right? That's why um, there's, there's great blessing that comes with eating. I mean, we could go through all of Scripture and come up with a long list of, of um, examples of eating together and it being significant. The... Um, all, the, all of Israel's happy about this. All of Israel's rejoicing except for one person. The Michael. That's right, Michael. And what does it say about Michael? When she saw David, she what? jealous? Not quite. She hated him. She despised him in her heart. She despised him in her heart. She has disdain for him. She has, um, she calls out his motives, right? You did this before the women. Right, so she's she's examining him and she's determining what his motives are, and then David corrects her. No, my motives were not that. My motives were this, 
And she has two accusations. One, that what he did was undignified for the king. The king should not be out wearing the linen ephod of the priest and dancing before the ark, playing the fool. It's undignified. She wanted a husband like her father, who, who was impressive in appearance, right? Saul was impressive. He was tall. He was handsome. He appeared the part of the king. Samuel even got caught up in Saul's appearances, right? But here's David, not caring about appearances, but just worshiping the Lord. And she wants, she would rather have dignified than faithful, right? And that, that should cut all of us, right? There are times when we would rather simply be respected and dignified than, be, than worship the Lord. So she wanted appearances, and then the other thing she accuses Michael of being is immodest. So undignified and immodest, that he's doing this to attract the attention of, of women. How does David respond? David responds with three words. Um, if you look at verse 21, so David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. Well, it was is not there. He just says before the Lord. Before the Lord. For the Lord, because, and then this gets gnarly, right? He brings up her father, right? Who chose me above your father and above all his household to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. So you think that Michael may have been, um, well, obviously, Michael, who wanted um, David to be like her father, may have still had issues with the rejection of her father over David. And so, um, that's his first response, is I danced before the Lord. I worshipped God. I, I did what I did because God is worthy of praise. It's sort of uninhibited worship. Do you ever feel uninhibited in worship? You know? Do you ever feel uninhibited in worship? Or is it all about appearance to you? You have a hard time raising your hands, right? God is worthy of us looking foolish at times, right? Anytime we share our faith, we look like fools, right? And if we want to be dignified, then we'll never share our faith. Um, if we want to hold back in worship, um, singing with low voice, or not using our bodies in worship, or um, refusing to kneel for a prayer of confession. That, that's sort of wanting to, to, that's amplifying your appearances over the worship of the Lord. And we really have to examine ourselves and discipline ourselves um, to worship before God. Now, the, all those actions can go the opposite way too. You can, you can do, you can use your body to uh, impress other people rather than to do it before the Lord, and that's equally as bad. Um, so he says, before the Lord, because he chose me, and then he says, I'll be even more humble, right? I will be even more lightly esteemed than this, and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished, right? So he's saying, I'll be even more humble before God, and those with discernment will recognize that this is humility 
and not what you've perceived it to be, Michael, which is to be undignified and immodest. Um, those with discernment would recognize it. He's going to serve God no matter what, and he is perfectly fine being lightly esteemed if it comes out of the, the worship of God. Now, the last thing we learn in the passage is that Michael is punished. She's punished with barrenness. Fruitlessness of Saul's household is complete. Right? Saul's household has come to an end. And it's sort of symbolized in the fruitlessness of his daughter. She had no, no child to the day of her death. And um, one, one commentary had this to say, and I think it's worth thinking about. Um, it's difficult not to feel some sympathy for Michael. Right? Does anybody feel any sympathy for Michael? Why do you feel sympathy for Michael? Perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, it was, it was um, unique. It was different. It's not what was to be expected of the king, but it gets praise. Why else? Okay, there was the rivalry between the houses. That you're still not getting what I think causes the most. She was taken from her husband, and there seemed to be genuine affection between Michael and this husband. Although it's an awkward situation because she was Michael's husband, she was given to another man. They seem to have genuine affection. David brings her back. And you have to think that that's part of the bitterness that, that she is, um, undoubtedly that's a part of the bitterness that she's feeling here. Well, the, the commentator goes on and says this, she had been taken from a loving husband and brought into a house full of wives and concubines. Don't forget that David, David's got a lot of wives. David's got seven, eight wives at this point and concubines. And here she's taken from a loving husband over to here. And so you, you begin to think, oh, he's really distinguished himself before the women. Right? Um, makes a little more sense. And then it says, her bitterness was understandable. And while David was sincere in dancing before the Lord, Michael's charge that he was more interested in the young women was prescient. What does the word prescient mean? Does anybody know? It it foretold what was coming in the future, right? What comes shortly after this? David is, is on his roof and he sees a woman bathing and out of lust for her ends up killing her husband and, um, and taking her. And so you... The, the sting of Michael here is prescient. It's not prophetic, but it's just she seems to have known something about David's, um, David's character and David's sin. All right, so what applications can we draw out of this, this passage? Um, a few things. <clears throat> um, Dale Ralph Davis in his his sermons said this, in our churches there are any number of folks who are very concerned with 
services and externals and procedures and mechanics and meetings and decency and order, but who really can't understand anything of the joy of the Lord. Right? There are people in our churches that are all about, you know, we got to get these things in, in a row and our theology has to be this. And they don't seem to have like, they don't seem to worship God. They worship order, concepts. Um, but not the living God. And here's David as an example. Yes, he's bringing order to his, and he's, he's probably commanding all kinds of orderly process, but he's also dancing before the ark of the Lord. Dancing, worshiping. He had a vital relationship with God Almighty. Do we give uh, all our lukewarm to Christ and our exuberance to the world? Right? What excites you? What, what got David going was the ark of the Lord and the worship of the Lord. And it seems that at times we're more lukewarm toward the Lord and, and hot, burn hot for the things of the world. And that shouldn't be. Um, <clears throat> does the presence of God move you to worship? Where is the presence of God? Well, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, right? And He dwells everywhere. And are you ever overcome by the presence of God? You know, I I remember younger... When I, when I first came to faith and um, went to Colorado for a summer, it was my delight to go find a rock on the side of a mountain and, and worship God. I'd just sit there and think about God. Um, read Scripture. Meditate on Him. Think about, that, think about the fact that He made all these things. Pray. That happens less, less often now than it used to. I mean... I had no responsibilities then. I was a single young man with no responsibilities. And so somehow I got to figure out how to worship while I'm, while I'm disciplining children and how to worship, you know, while I'm loving my wife and all these other things and caring for a church. And um, I sh- we should be able to do that there. there. There should be this practice, practice of the presence of God and all that we do, we should be able to have our minds dwell upon him. Um, not to be not to be poor workers and not to be poor servants, but um, to be better workers because we're doing it out of the worship of the Lord. Do you think about God? I mean, that seems like a stupid question to ask Christians, but I know how how long I can go without thinking about God. Right? When you wake up in the morning, is is your first thought the Lord Almighty and prayer? Thank you for getting me through the night. It should be. Um, Don't be cynical. Okay, that's always a hard one for me to exhort others to because I'm a cynic, okay? And I'm sorry. It's an affliction. Uh, Cynicism toward those who openly love Jesus will lead to your own barrenness. Do not be cynical toward those who love Jesus exuberantly. 
It's so easy to do that. It's so easy to despise Jesus freaks and those who are always witnessing and those who are making my life inconvenient because they want to witness, 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 you know? Um, I went to the store to buy milk. I didn't go to the store to give a sermon to a crackhead. Well, don't be cynical like that. Um, Those who openly love Jesus are glorious and a good challenge to us. And um, if we openly despise those who are loving Jesus like that, we can expect that God will treat us like Michael, who despised David for being exuberant and, and faithful and loving toward God. We'll be barren. We won't produce food. We won't produce disciples. We won't produce anything. And so repent of that. Uh, fourth, worship with the body. Raise your hands as you sing. Kneel. Use your voice in song. Take deep breaths. Suck air into your lungs because God is worthy of praise. Right? Worship should be fatiguing physically. Um, David was probably panting, out of breath, sweating. Right? In a sense, we should be doing the same thing. Um, Hands raised, kneeling, voices in song, standing, dancing. I'm not opposed to to dance in worship. I'm opposed to kinds of dance in worship. I don't think we should have a worship troupe and and, um, think that people are telling stories through dance. I just think you should move as you sing. That's dance. Move your body. Why when you sing Billy Joel do you move your body, but in the worship of God, you are frigid and stand still and hardly breathe? Well, who is it then? Holland Oates. <laughs> um, whoever it may be. Yeah, well, sports is the obvious example. That's the humdinger, right? We'll, we'll, um, we'll throw a, you know, we'll throw out our back worshiping our sports teams Um, and we'll use our voice we'll lose our voice right we'll go to concerts or we'll go to sports events and come back hoarse the next day man wouldn't it be great if we we went into work on monday and we were hoarse from worshiping the lord that'd be something the sanctuary be filled with with loud singing um something may be said to you in anger like Michael's words, but it may contain some truth. Right? Michael's, Michael was wrong about David's motives. He was dancing before the Lord. But he was also sort of nailing him for what was going to come up forward. That he has, his, he has an, an ungodly fixation on women. Right? So even though her rebuke was wrong, there was some truth in it. Right? And so, so be humble. When somebody rebukes you, they may get you wrong, but there may be some truth in it that we can come away with and, and, uh, and change. You know, um, remember, remember Michael's bitterness, yes, but also remember what is coming, which is David's murder and adultery. And... Perhaps David, if he had reflected on this and said, perhaps there was a part of me that was trying to impress the women today. 
then he would have been more prepared for what was coming down the road. So just be humble. Um, even, even things said to you in anger may contain some truth. And we would be good to respond to it. Any other, any other applications that people are, people are thinking about? That's what struck me in this. When you read this passage, what is it? How does it rebuke? How does it help you? Anything else? No, Malachi? Fresh out of applications? Well, think on those things and um, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for 2 Samuel 6. We thank you for King David. We thank you that in King David we see both faithfulness and worship, but we also see his sins and his repentance. Father, we thank you for the, um, the example that he is. We thank, you for, uh, we thank you for the better example of Jesus, who in all things worshiped you perfectly, who did not uh, run off course, who did not respond poorly to um, the anger of others, but um, responded perfectly in every situation. So, Father, we pray as we study David that we would be conformed to your Son, Jesus, and that we would be strong in him. Father, I pray that our worship would be exuberant, that our worship would be heartfelt. I pray that there would be times during the week when we just stop, stop trying to get the next thing done, even if there are only two minutes in the week, that those two minutes would be spent, spent dwelling upon you, thanking you, thinking on your glory. Lord, forgive us for not stopping and simply worshiping you. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.